if you are going to focus completely on just what the numbers say, you're missing the big picture. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook, presented by Details Interactive. Here, you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 10, and today's guest is Doug Zarkin. Doug is the Chief Marketing Officer at Pearl Vision Centers. Before we get started, a quick thank you, as always, to Max Brandstetter, of the Wild wow Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at hippodirect.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thanks for joining the Marketing Playbook Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and today's guest is Doug Zarkin. Doug is the Chief Marketing Officer for Pearl Vision. Welcome, Doug, to the show. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. Uh, my pleasure. Uh, looking forward to hearing uh, all about your history and your background and, and what you've been doing uh, at, at Pearl Vision. Uh, but before we get into that background, we're, uh, we've got an unprecedented, unprecedented crisis going on right now. Uh, it's impacting uh, all of us uh, a little bit differently in, in different parts of the country, but uh, certainly impacting all of the retailers, uh, even uh, online retailers as well. Uh, Doug, can you give us a, a quick view of, of what you're seeing uh, in your business so far? Sure. Um, you know, I think, first of all, for you and for everybody who's listening, I hope everybody is, is staying healthy and safe. Uh, I think for retailers, uh, it's a opportunity to just be completely transparent with themselves. You know, marketers in particular don't like to say, I don't know, or I can't figure it out. I think we're in a situation right now as a industry, not just optical retail, but retail in general, where we're all figuring it out on the fly. And that really requires us to have a very good sense of not only what's happening at the national, state, and local level, but also what's happening in the communities in which you know, we own, you know, which our, our locations are based in. Um, you've gotta be able to temperature check. There isn't a one size fits all solution. You know, if you have a location, like we have locations in rural parts of the country, uh, where there may be, you know, 30,000 people in a city and they are taking a little bit of a different approach to Corona than you would be taking in Manhattan or Philadelphia. Um, so I think the one thing that we are doing right now is we are leading by listening, listening to state and national and local officials, but in our case, really listening to our consumers and to our licensed owners um, and where necessary our locations are closing where possible our locations are staying open because you know if you're a minus four uh, and you can't see and you break your glasses well i would qualify us as a critical healthcare need you can't drive you can't you know go for a run without bumping into a tree you know glasses are something that you need it's the most important it's the most important sense that a person has arguably so you know we've got to be very sensitive to the fact that it's not about selling ray-bans right now it's really about caring for the people behind the eyes. And, and that's really at the heart of what we do at Pearl. And we're really taking that approach with how we're proceeding each and every day. Right. Okay. Well, thank you. And, and good health to you and your family and, and all the folks that uh, work in your company. 
uh, I'm sure you'll do what's necessary to uh, keep everybody uh, informed and, and healthy. So let's let's jump back. Um, you know, we like to start most of these shows um, with a, a background of of the guest. So uh, maybe give us uh, a, a quick overview of uh, you know where you went to school, where you grew up, um, sure. how perhaps uh, you know that has uh, helped craft your career a bit. Absolutely. Well, I originally from Boston, um, but moved to Westchester County. Uh, at age four. And so I grew up a, a Yankee and a Giants fan. Found myself academically spending both my undergraduate and graduate years down in DC, undergrad at GW, and then did my master's degree at American University. Was pursuing a, originally a JD MBA and figured out pretty early on that law was not going to be a career choice for me. And so I ended up completing my master's degree in about 13 months and then moved, you know, moved to Manhattan, moved back to New York to seek fame and fortune um, and have been in the New York City area ever since. Well, you've got the fame, whether you, I don't know, I can't speak to whether you have the fortune. Hardly. (laughs) Infamy, maybe, not fame. (laughs) So, uh, you know, when you went to school and, and, you know, part of what we're trying to do um, on the marketing playbook is, is, you know, give the listener, you know, at the end of the day, three or four takeaways that they can bring back to their business or they can bring back to their personal life. In in those days, uh, going directly to graduate school from undergrad was a thing, right? Not so much anymore, right? Right, right, right. I mean, for me, it was a pretty easy decision. You know, there were two really big drivers. The first one was financially. Um, I went on on partial scholarship, um, academic scholarship to American, and so you know, being able to say to my parents, who fortunately they were able to support me and put me through college, you know, mom and dad, guess what? I, I got a ride to go to grad school. Was something that, as a gift to be able to give back to my parents, is something that I'm I'm grateful, you know, to be able to do. You know, while it's not, you know, Seinfeld buying your dad a Cadillac, um, it was a nice surprise for them when I let them know. But I think intellectually, um, you know, the big decision for me was that I didn't feel that intellectually I was mature enough to um, go into the workforce. You know, undergrad really teaches you how to memorize. Graduate school really teaches you how to think. And for me, you know, the, the 13 months I spent getting my MBA was an incredible boot camp and really sort of thinking 101. And eventually when I graduated, was ready to sort of tackle building my career journey, um, but grateful, grateful for that time period. Right. And so you moved back to New York and for a, a, a good hunk of your career, maybe if I counted right, roughly 10 years, you spent working uh, at a number of different agencies. Uh, can you talk about that experience? Why agencies? You know, what did you learn? You know, sure. and, and perhaps, you know, looking back, how did those roles prepare you to, you know, move to the brand side? So dating myself, you know, when I graduated grad school, there was no such thing as LinkedIn. Um, and, you know, the way you got interviews was family, friends and networking. A family friend sat me down and said, what do you eventually want to do when, you know, you grow up? And I said, well, you know, when I'm in my 40s and 50s, what I eventually want to do is, is run a business and run a brand. And he said to me, you know, that's great. Get on the train at the end, work your way to the front. So by the time that you move to the client side and you're in a C-level position, you'll not only understand all of the roles and functions, you'll have done them. And more importantly, you'll understand how to motivate those people that are in those roles because you speak that language. And I got to be honest with you, it was such valuable advice, you know, going out into media planning and moving to account management, eventually 
you know, being tapped to, to start and lead a division of, at the time, the largest independent agency on the planet in, in gray was phenomenal. Uh, and it really prepared me to eventually make the jump to the dark side of the force, which I did when I went client side at Avon. That's funny. Uh, being a brand guy, the whole, my whole career, I look at the dark side as moving to the provider side of things. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, so during that time, um, maybe give us a, a, a quick view of of the agency side during that period. So you said something about media planner. What were the kinds of roles that you you had during that ten year sure. stay in, in agencies? So I, I started out in media planning um, when media planning was fun, uh, when you had you know TV, radio, out of home, and print, and eventually went into an account management tra- training program at Saatchi and, Saatchi and Saatchi, which was a joint partnership with General Mills, who was Saatchi's largest client, um, and spent some time in the executive training program, and then eventually was recruited out to go to Gray, where I not only was in their account management program, but I also was doing a significant amount of traveling as the domestic and international liaison for their youth initiative, which at the time was called Gray 18 and Under, and found myself living in markets for you know, weeks at a time. I spent a week in Rio. I spent two weeks in Germany, two weeks in London, you know, working with Gray's larger clients on portfolio management opportunities and brand positioning opportunities. And it was just an incredible chance to see the world. You know, one of the projects I was most proud of during my agency tenure was writing the brand architecture for the Harry Potter franchise for Warner Brothers. Um, Warner Brothers had secured the rights to the books, but didn't have a consumer product strategy. And we were tapped to outline for all of the departments how to basically bring this brand to life outside of the, the cinematic aspect. And, you know, one of the things that I'll never forget sitting in the room, helping to come up with this insight was when we realized that if we had said to, when we said to Warner Brothers, you know what? You need to think of every licensed product that you do that has Harry Potter anything on it as an artifact from the book. It shaped the way they thought about product placement, product expansion, licensing relationships. You know, don't throw the Harry Potter logo on one of those glasses that you get at the mobile station. You know, create the goblet, create the candies that you got, recreate the experience. And and I got to tell you, you know, even 20 years later, when you look at how they've really blown out the Harry Potter franchise, um, now that the movies are gone, they really have taken that philosophy to heart still. You know, the Harry Potter world is exactly that. Everything looks like an artifact from the movie. And um, it's one of the projects that I'll never forget, sort of sitting in the room with some really impressive people and laying sort of the, the philosophy that I just outlined on them and kind of them all looking at each other and being like, yep. That's it. And uh, very gratifying. That's great. It uh, sounds like a really, uh, really good experience. Uh, so you, you have all this time uh, on the agency side. And, and now, as you call it, uh, you decide, well, maybe it's time to make that move to the dark side. And yep. you know, your first dark side role was with Avon. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Avon. Avon. I was the, I was the founding uh, marketing and creative services lead for their young women's business, which was called Mark. And uh, you know, amazing chance to work with one of the most brilliant leaders uh, in the business, Andrea Jung. And, um, you know, Andrea had a vision to bring in 
a new generation, not only of buyers, but of more importantly, of salespeople, of sellers. Didn't know who it was, didn't know what it was, but, you know, assembled this group of leaders to figure it out. And, you know, spent a year and a half incubating and creating the product line, the branding, the marketing, the website, developing a whole host of really exciting partnerships with everybody from um, Ford to University of Phoenix. Our training became a, a college credited training course that people who were signing up to be a Mark representative would take the training and they'd earn you know one and a half college credits. We brought e-commerce to the Avon model and really helped really jumpstart the way in which orders were placed. Um, but I think the most important thing we did was bring incrementality. You know, in the first 18 months after launching, I think we delivered about $118 million um, of complete incrementality to the business because our product line, our positioning, our messaging was so authentic, but it was so different than your mother's Avon that it just naturally brought in new people. And uh, it opened up an, an incredible, exciting world for me um, in terms of experiences and, and chances to hopefully continue to do great work. And, and was it hard, you know, in the sense that, you know, you had, you referred to it as, you know, your mother's um, Avon lady or your mother's Avon business. I thought of it as, you know, the Avon lady. And now you were trying to take the halo of the Avon brand, add some other things to it and, and now sell differently. So was it hard with, you know, culturally internally to get people to think differently? How did that all work out? So, you know, anytime you're asking somebody to think differently, the journey starts emotional and then it becomes rational. Um, you know, one of the things that for whatever reason I decided to do was to approach the leadership about actually going out into the field and selling. And so I spent about six weeks traveling across the country as an Avon lady, as an Avon representative, selling lip glosses. And, you know, today I can still sell the shit out of a lip gloss if you need one, Mark. <laughs> I, I know how to do it. But what it allowed me to do candidly was to understand the vernacular of the existing business model. And so when we approached senior leadership with here are the things that we wanted to change or evolve, it was always coming from a position of listening in order to lead. You know, I listened and learned the model in order to eventually lead through innovation. And the receptivity to it was really quite good because everybody recognized that we were about incrementality. It wasn't trying to shove another lip gloss in the 45 year old representative's bag, it was really trying to bring in a younger, more affluent consumer. And you know, we were able to assemble a sales force of college girls selling to other college girls on college campuses and really jumpstart a period of time in their life cycle that was very exciting for that brand. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's amazing. So you you had your a, a good run there, and then yep. um, I, I guess from there you moved to uh, Victoria's Secret, and yep. you know in in that business, um, help me just to to gauge timing. Pink was a sub brand at that point, and and you kind of came in to help blow it out. Yeah, but Pink was a was an incubating brand, um, and it was more of a product than a brand at that point and um, was recruited into the organization to really help dimensionalize it into a fully articulated brand. So translation moved just beyond the sweatpants that had the pink logo on the tush and really create a fully articulated product line. Again, Victoria's Secret had a similar problem, which was you know, their consumer was, was older. It was you know, women in their late 20s to 40s. And um, they saw an opportunity similar to what we had done with Mark 
to bring in that younger consumer into the world of Victoria's Secret. And so that required a new marketing position, a new product position. Um, and, you know, eventually what turned into a standalone retail concept, but I was involved in sort of creating the shop and shop that eventually jump started after I left into fully articulated stores. When you, uh, as you were thinking through, you know, how to carve, you know, pink out of it, you know, that younger consumer, not only in, in their age and in their wants, but they seem to be more fickle, um, than, you know, the, the older, more mature woman. And I don't mean you know, mature as in, you know, sure. citizen, but, um, w- was that the case? Did you find that? And it made it, did that make it more complicated? No. Um, you know, what we found was that the consumer, um, that younger consumer had the discretionary income, which was fantastic, but was really looking for us to appeal to her intelligently. Um, you know, look, we were selling, you know, intimate apparel and lip gloss and, um, you know, sweatpants. So it wasn't a a rocket science product initiative, but the way in which we went about talking to her, she was looking to be spoken to in a certain way. Um, And it wasn't necessarily the way in which Victoria's Secret was speaking to their customers. So it was really an interesting marketing challenge because you had to pay homage to the master brand because the brand was VS Pink. But at the same time, you needed to create a different, I don't know, marketing ecosystem, perhaps is the way to refer to it, in order to stimulate somebody to recognize that this brand was for her. And in reality, while we brought in significant incrementality, um, we found that the existing VS customer liked the product line. And so, you know, one of the challenges was trying to convince her mom not to wear her clothes. Right. You know, we started to see, you know, pink sweatpants on a lot of soccer moms. And uh, that was not necessarily a great thing. It was good from a sales perspective, but long term for the brand, it was trouble. It was troubling and concerning. Right. Yeah. Couldn't ask somebody that's, you know, worked in that company, uh, you know, what their perspective is on, you know, what's happened, you know, at Victoria's Secret over the the last few years. Uh, They've uh, obviously gone through uh, a number of of senior leadership changes and, and now they're, you know, their business was, was sold. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, you're the outsider now, what, what do you think happened there? Just, and, and I won't get specific into people, but there were a few who were just so arrogant and close-minded about what a young woman or what a woman wanted and how she wanted to be spoken to. Um, and for those of you that are female listening to this, they're like, well, what the hell does he know? He's a guy. The thing is, is that when you are not the target audience, in order to effectively lead, you first have to effectively listen. And you know, we sat in rooms with some of the existing leadership at the company and you know, they would utter phrases like, I don't want girls who are bigger than a size eight wearing the product. Mm. And you'd shake your head and be like, you're such an idiot. You know, the average, the average female is a size 10. And you're telling me that you don't want to make product that somebody who's a size eight and more can wear. And it just, it was kind of mind boggling at the time. And, and, you know, again, for those of you that have either worked at limited or know people who worked at limited, you understand the culture that existed there. It was a very autocratic environment, which eventually was the reason why I left because I didn't feel like I had the opportunity to make a difference, even though that some of the decisions that I had the chance to make, I I thought were good ones and did impact the business positively. 
you know, the reality is, is that, you know, when you're a founder led brand, if that founder isn't necessarily open to innovation or believes that they can teach you everything you need to know about everything, then there really is no room for somebody who wants to make a difference. The devil's in the details. You've probably heard that phrase time and time again in your professional life. Projects get started with great intentions, but you no longer have the time to pay attention to the little things that can make the difference between success and failure. At Details Interactive, you can discuss your business with a seasoned direct-to-consumer marketing executive who has helped launch and grow web businesses and integrate multi-channel marketing initiatives. Learn more at detailsinteractive.com. So let's uh, let's move away from from VS. You, you've worked for a, a few different wholesale companies. Yep. Uh, so you know companies that you're marketing products and you're reliant on other retailers to actually tell your story. How how difficult is that to be the marketing guy? Know what your your marketing you know approaches, who you're trying to target, but now you you're relying on so many other people to be consistent to that message. It is. Um... It's very challenging. You know, being a vertical retailer comes with an incredible responsibility in that you control all the points of contact that you have with the eventual end user. When you are a wholesaler, your vision needs to be as concise and as crystal clear as possible to allow as little ambiguity as possible when it moves through the chain of command to the eventual wholesaler that you are selling through. You know, I used to really focus on the things that we can control, you know, control the controllable. And so when it came to brand articulation, product assortment, the way in which we communicated with consumers via social, which we controlled, we wanted to be as focused and as pointed and as consistent as we could with what we were completely controlling and then there's a little bit of, you know, cross your fingers and hope when it comes to when the product's on the retail floor. And um, absolutely, Mark, very frustrating when the misses are things that are not your control, but impact your performance, for sure. Right. Okay. So you're the CMO of Pearl Vision. Um, you know, one of the things I, I think that's interesting is, you know, and I actually did a session uh, with this at a recent conference about the changing role of a CMO. So, but you know, before we get too deeply into Pearl, what's your your perspective? Has the role of the CMO changed? Is it going to continue to evolve? Um, and and maybe talk a little bit about you know your scope of responsibility in your current position. So I absolutely think the role of the CMO has changed, and it's interesting. I'd say five years ago, it started to lean incredibly heavy into data. Um, you know, every job spec you would see on LinkedIn or anybody you would talk to, well, I'm looking for a data-driven CMO. I think now what you're seeing is a little bit moved back into balance, a, a CMO who is both art and science. And the reason for that is that I'm a firm believer that data doesn't make decisions. People make decisions using data. Data is also only as good as the questions that you ask. And so how do you know what questions to ask that requires you to understand the art form that is consumer behavior? If you are going to focus completely on just what the numbers say, you're missing the big picture. And oftentimes, the insight that is required 
to craft the data research to get to the analysis, to get to the unlock comes not from what you receive on a spreadsheet. It's from what you see happening within the four walls of your retail experience or talking to consumers or doing post-purchase surveys, getting a real flavor for how your business resonates in the, in the landscape is incredibly valuable. And so your uh, role today, um, what, what reports up to you, you know, how, how is it, uh, you know, carved out? So my role really is about connecting the brand, putting the brand on the brain of those in the community, you know, responsible for all of the franchise marketing for all of our corporate and franchise locations uh, throughout North America. How, How many locations are there that are corporate and how many that are franchise? So we have about, about, 20% 20% of our locations are corporately owned. The rest of them are, are franchise owners. We call them licensed owners. And the majority of those locations are owned by doctors and uh, opticians. So we really are a community-based business owned by healthcare professionals, very much in keeping with the vision that Dr. Stanley Pearl had in 1961 when he started the business. And so when a customer walks into, um, I would imagine when a customer walks into a company owned versus a, a franchise location, the goal is to have the experience and the branding be consistent regardless. Yeah. The consumer should have absolutely no idea whether the location is corporately owned or owned by a loan or operator. Our commitment is really about caring for the people behind the eyes and it doesn't matter the ownership structure we should be delivering a consistently consistent experience. That is exactly what keeps me up at night is trying to work to ensure that what we deliver in every neighborhood where we have an eye care center, which is what we call our retail establishments, that we are delivering consistent care from the exam room to the retail floor. Right. And so when a, for somebody that is not familiar with, with Pearl Vision, what can I have done? What can I get done at one of your uh, vision centers? So to get a, a, a comprehensive assessment, not just your vision acuity, but the overall health and wellness of your eye, um, because you know a comprehensive eye exam is more than just updating your prescription. It, it looks, it could give you a sense of your overall health and wellness, diabetes, high blood pressure. These are all things that can be detected from a comprehensive eye exam, or there are indicators that will pop up during a comprehensive eye exam. Um, and then you're going to walk out, hopefully, with your perfect pair. And that perfect pair may be um, a prescription pair. It may be prescription sun. Um, you know, we want to make sure that your vision acuity is spot on, but also that your eyes are healthy. And w- when you look at, you know, customer research, I'm, I'm sure that's a big part of, of what your team is, is doing. W- what do the customers say um, that are coming to you? What are the, the kind of the buzzwords that you hear? You know, if we did that, that word bubble, um, yeah, what, would sure. you, you, what, what do you, you think that they're saying? I think what they're saying, or I know what they're saying, because we, mm-hmm. we spend a lot of time listening. Um, you know, we have a very extensive reputation management platform through the folks at reputation.com that allow us to essentially do thousands of store visits virtually because we are looking at the experiences and what's being played back. Personalized, it comes back a lot. Care comes back a lot. Comprehensive, nice, sweet caring you know there is a genuineness to our brand and that's you know i would say 75 percent of the time that's what comes back like every retailer 
25% of the time we get it wrong. And, you know, you get rushed or, you know, pushy or insincere, you know, and that's, that's really where it becomes about progress, not perfection. We still have opportunities in our business model to perfect the eye care experience. But overall, the research will tell you that we are delivering the highest in quality of care among the retailers that exist. That's great. Who do you compete with? Um, so I, I think for us, you know, when it comes to quality of care, you know, the independent doctor down the street who hangs their shingle, for whatever reason, is perceived to be strongest in care. And it's similar to like your neighborhood pizza joint. Mm-hmm. You know, we all have a neighborhood pizza place that we love. But honestly, if you were to go in the storage room and you would see where they got their tomato sauce and the flour for their dough, it's probably the same distribution center that the, the chain places get down the street. The reality is, is the perception is, is that smaller is better. And so we're, we're creating, you know, we're trying to create meaningful uh, connection between the quality of care perception that we deliver and that of what you would get from the independent doctor down the street. On the retail side, you know, obviously there are some big boys out there. You know, our category, our product line that we sell, you know, we're fortunate to be part of an organization, Luxottica, SLR Luxottica, that sells the best frames on the planet. And so those best frames are carried at a lot of places. And so there are naturally a number of competitors that we face against. But for us, it's really about carving out our distinction, you know, within the landscape. And our success in doing that has allowed us to really grow year after year. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting about your your thoughts of, um, you know, we have a Pearl Vision. I live in New Jersey. We have one on a on a main road called Route 22. Uh, mm-hmm. We have all the big car dealers and and all. And you know, I could see. I, I know from myself. You know, I look at that and and you know versus the the local doctor to go in. I could see how some co- people would have a different perception of the level of care that they might get. So you know, that is an interesting uh, challenge. I imagine that you face when you look at your business from a digital uh, perspective. And I don't mean digital advertising, we'll come to that. But when I go to the, the website today, um, I can book an appointment, I believe. Can't do anything else from, or at least I couldn't uh, see. Um, so are you thinking about how you make that a, a uh, more 360 kind of an experience? Or are you guys comfortable and, and want the folks you know, to come into the store for absolutely everything that they need to that they couldn't do online? The success of Pearl Vision is really about personalized service. And in a category where a millimeter of fit in your glasses is the difference between seeing clearly and having a massive headache, we are very committed to focusing on that personal experience, that human experience. Things that go around it, go around it. But the bottom line is that if your eyes are in need of care, do you want to do that care virtually? Or do you want to sit in front of somebody who's a licensed and trained expert who's going to treat you as a person and make sure that the product that you buy is personally fit for you and your needs. We tend to lean into the latter. So does that mean that, you know, what I see today is, is pretty much where you're going to be for the foreseeable future from a, a digital experience? I, I think what you see today is at the core of our reason for being and why we continue to be best in class. Um, what you see tomorrow will complement that. And you know what that takes form as, don't quite know. Um, consumers tend to be ext- are, are very happy right now with what they get when they come to the neighborhood Pearl Vision. 
And so we're really focusing on optimizing the experience today. Digital for us is a connection point. The goal is to get you to your neighborhood eye care center so that you can experience one of our neighborhood eye care experts and get that personalized care that makes the difference. Got it. Got it. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, risk and, and success and failure. So, you know, to me, failing's okay. You know, it shows that we're really trying, you know, can you speak about a, a marketing initiative or a program that, you know, you, you wanted to put in, in test, you thought it was going to work well, um, and then it failed. You know, I, I think some of the things that we tried to do at Pink with um, some ambassador programs that we wanted to do to, to really try and bring to life what the brand stood for. It wasn't that it was a failure in the sense of that it was a bad idea. It was a failure in that, you know, when you were developing a brand that is a sub-brand or some would view it as a derivative brand, I think we underestimated the impact of the master brand, the halo effect that it had. You know, going to college campuses, going to high school, talking to high school kids about, a brand like Pink that had the VS name on it, there was a lot of baggage that went with it. Some of it was excellent baggage. I mean, some of it was a lot of credibility, but there was also some overtones. You know, talking to a 15-year-old girl when you're projecting an image of supermodel sexy is a little bit of a disconnect. So I think, you know, personally, I underestimated the ability to separate the sub-brand from the master brand at least at that point. I think today it's easier because you have so many more channels that are at your disposal to really create brand differentiation. But back then, um, your ecosystem, even in the digital world, was still pretty sophomoric. And so you know, it really required you to kind of go out and do a lot of heavy lifting in order to generate perspective. Mm -hmm. when, when you look at, at Pearl now from a, a marketing tactics um, perspective, and you know you look at whatever the the dollar amount that you know you put to work for you. What are the the major components of of that spend today? You know I, what I'll say, and obviously I can't and won't reveal the the secret recipe. But what I will say is that we understand that our business is built. We call it the five mile battle and the nine mile war for um, patients, both on the retail side as well as in the exam lane. You know we understand that you know, if the average speed limit in the suburbs, which is really where we're based, is about 30, 30 miles an hour, nobody's gonna travel more than about 20 minutes to find their neighborhood eye care center. And so we are hyper-focused on winning the share of mind at the neighborhood level. We have built significant programs, both digitally and terrestrially, um, to put our brand on the brain. We do a lot of storytelling. You know, we believe consumers make emotional decisions before they have that rational choice. There are a lot of places to go for glasses. That's a rational choice. The emotional decision comes in terms of who you trust. And that's really where we have spent a significant amount of our time and energy in creating an emotional trust bank with our neighbors. So that when that epiphany moment comes, either through us stimulating or through them recognizing like, geez, I need to get my eyes checked that they remember what we stand for as a brand and how we connect with them. And it makes the decision, the choice to come to us pretty easy.
Is it a struggle though, you know, back to your, your comment about, you know, some people feeling like, you know, at a vision center, they're not going to get the same care. How, how do you get somebody over that gap? You know, somebody that, um, you know, change their, their mindset from using their local doctor to going to, you know, a Pearl center. So some of them you're not going to, but really we do it through showing, not telling, you know, the most powerful marketing tool on the planet has always been word of mouth has always mm-hmm. been referral. And so by us really focusing on delivering an amazing experience and, you know, we have a best in class operations team that really has done a great job in creating the neighborhood eye care experience. If we deliver an amazing experience, you're going to tell people about it. And that's really how we start to create perceptual runway or say climb the, you know, move forward on the perceptual runway and begin to get people to start thinking about us, not as a faceless chain, but as an authentic brand started by a doctor own locally that really cares about me as a person. And, um, you know, when I look at the eight years that I've been with the company, the trajectory of the business really demonstrates the fact that we have started to change hearts and minds and win that neighborhood battle. And when you, uh, for those of the uh, people who have listened to some of the other shows that I've done, um, I like to talk about the A word, uh, attribution. So you've got a whole litany of, of marketing tactics that you're using. You're spending a whole bunch of dollars. How are you measuring or how are you getting some confidence uh, and comfort in the places that you're spending the dollars are really, in fact, working for you? You know, we're looking at things like exam growth. We're looking at cop customer count. You know, we're also looking at our reputation scores, you know, both our NPS as well as our, our reputation.com score. Uh, you know, when the Women's Choice Awards honored us as the best brand for women in 2019 and again in 2020, that's proof that we're making a difference with consumers that we're focusing on. For us as a franchise business, if you are not filling the book and it's not resulting in comp sales, you're going to hear about it. Franchisees are not shy about letting you know when you're not doing a good job. We have an incredibly vocal group of owners, but those owners are also super passionate about what they do, which has allowed us to really move and move quite quickly. You know, eight years ago, we were thought of as the buy one, get one free brand. Today, we sit atop the hill as the best doctor quality brand in optical retail. Um, And the reason why we do that is because we have an incredible ownership structure and, you know, amazing frontline associates that recognize that the key to winning a consumer both long and short term is earning their trust. And that's really what our marketing does is help to earn that trust by setting a perceptual roadmap of how we want people to come into our eye care centers. And um, do we deliver on it every time? Most times, yes. The times that we don't, we learn and, and we improve. As a franchisee, how, how much control do I have um, at the local level in, in how I advertise in my community? Um, not much. Uh, you know, you're paying a royalty to us to be your marketing team, to be your marketing experts. You know, everybody's got a nephew, uncle, cousin, brother who works at an ad agency. And, and you know, we, we, we take a fair amount of um, that into our thinking when you know we position ideas and present marketing plans at the local level but the thing that we the things that we remind our owners about is that you're paying us to be your marketing team let our team of experts guide you on those decisions and um i think overall we do a pretty good job
Thank you. Uh, we're getting down to the uh, end of our show here. And uh, Doug, uh, we do a, a two minute drill here, kind of keeping with the theme of the, the marketing playbook. And, and despite the fact that you said you were a Yankee fan, you did say you were a Giants fan, right? Giants football? Correct. Correct. All right. So, Correct. Well, 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 that's at least that's you got one right there from my perspective. Um, so I've got a, a couple of questions or actually seven that we ask each of the guests. Can I fire them at you all uh, Go quick, for and, and, quick and dirty? Okay. A brand that you admire or that inspires you? Adidas. The favorite app on your telephone? Team Snap. Team Snap. Okay. Uh, last website other than Amazon that you shopped from? Uh, coach. Something that you're not good at, but that you wish that you were? Spelling. <laughs> you got spell check, so you're in business. Uh, charitable organization that you're passionate about? Helpusadopt.org. If you had one superpower, what would it be? Uh, the ability to fly. Okay, we hear a lot about people wanting to fly. I guess those are the folks that are stuck in traffic a lot. You, you know, the frequent flyer memberships are not what they used to be. <laughs> this is true. Um, other than family, what's your most prized possession? Wow, you stumped me. Um, probably my tennis racket. Okay, that's a good one. All right, well, look, thank you very much. Um, if people want to reach out to you, Doug, where can they find you on social media? Sure. So you can, you can obviously reach me through LinkedIn or um, on Twitter at Doug Zarkin. I hope this was entertaining, maybe a little bit inspiring. Uh, you know, I think you, uh, you put out a couple of uh, really good uh, pieces of information for the listener. And, uh, you know, frankly, it was nice to, uh, to chat with you again. So talk to you soon. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Doug Zarkin for coming on the Marketing Playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, in order to effectively lead, you have to effectively listen. Number two, data doesn't make decisions. People make decisions using data. And data is also only as good as the questions that you ask of your customers. And number three, Doug started on the agency side of marketing and advertising. It was a great way to learn the basic blocking and tackling of the industry and a way to prepare for making the move to the brand side. You can make a change from one side or another during your career and leverage what you have learned to make your new role even better. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at DetailsInteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details.